calling you um, this tax woman that is as something against American companies. I think that's surely a nice proof um, of the power, not only of your institution, but also how determined your actions have been in the last uh, few years. And it's perhaps also a symbol uh, that Europe um, and the European Union definitely matter on a global stage um, when, um, uh, when they have the right institutions in place and are determined to act. So um, I very much uh, would like to thank you for joining us tonight and I want to give, before giving the floor to you, the floor quickly to the chair of our scientific uh, committee, Svend Hugert Jensen, uh, who is from Denmark and who um, agreed to add a few words uh, of welcome and introduction before we turn to your keynote speech. Thank you very much. Well, I think it says a lot about the caliber of uh, our keynote speaker tonight that it uh, requires two men to introduce uh, just uh, one uh, woman. Um, but um, <clears throat> it's actually a great pleasure for me to, uh, to add uh, just a few additional um, comments uh, on, uh, on, on Margrethe Vestager. Um, as, uh, as was said, uh, the, I think the main reason I was asked to do that is that I come from the same country, uh, Denmark. Uh, I assume that you know what Denmark is, otherwise you may have heard a couple of weeks ago uh, on Fox News uh, that uh, Denmark was uh, characterized sort of as a, as a full-fledged crone of Venezuela. So a... Um, a socialist uh, a paradise, uh, and uh, I thought that um, uh, I wouldn't really uh, take notice of that uh, unless uh, for the reason that I understand that Fox News is the key provider of updates uh, for the uh, U.S. president. Um, anyway, uh, let me get back to uh, Margrethe Vestager. Uh, the CV already actually uh, Guntram said uh, uh, some, um, something about Margrethe, uh, and uh, the folder would add, uh, you can read about her there. I just want to say a few things. First, that uh, she became chairman of her political party at a very early, a very young age, at the age of 25. She became minister at the age of 30, minister of education, and um, when she became a more senior minister for uh, economics, uh, affairs, and the interior, um, it was um, quite uh, interesting uh, to observe in my country that it was often referred ministers uh, in that government were referred to as minister uh, in the government of uh, Margrethe Vestager. That also applied to the prime minister. And, you know, this would be something like referring to Tony Blair as prime minister in Gordon Brown's government, you know, something like that. Um, I want to proceed with something which would uh, make Margrethe uh, sort of a permanent figure. That is to refer to a quote 
that actually in 2012 became the quote of the year. I am sure you all know the quote, Wir schaffen das from uh, Merkel, and Margrethe Vestager has a similar one, which is uh, in Danish, sådan er det jo. Sådan er det jo. It's in English something like, it can't be any other way, or that's just the way it is. In my view, this is a sign of Margrethe's uh, sort of strength to get to the point, to avoid bullshit, and just get to what really matters. And I think that's a, a, a big uh, attribute uh, of her. I also uh, want to um, refer to something tonight which I think really uh, is key to her personality and also the party that she represents. That is to contribute to uh, trust. The Scandinavian countries are known for having trust as a key property of the success of their, uh, or reason behind the, uh, the successful uh, performance. And the way Margrethe has contributed to that is to when she became Minister of Economic Affairs uh, uh, back in, in 2011, she just insisted on this new center-left government pursuing the same sort of on the key elements economic policy as the outgoing center-right government did, thereby sort of providing consistency in the overall macroeconomic uh, framework. So, so this is really a very, very, very strong uh, person, a very strong politician uh, that we have. I want actually not to say more about what uh, she has done in Brussels. I think actually that uh, Guntram uh, did that. I also know that most of you probably are a bit hungry already, even though we've had the first course. So I think from here, I want to hand over uh, the floor to the commissioner. So, Margrethe uh, Vestager. Thank you. Believe it or not, I'm going to talk about factfulness. <laughs> and that may be a little tricky after all this praise. But that being said, thank you very much for inviting me. It is a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, but not only is it a pleasure to be here, it's a pleasure to see what you do, because it's important. Uh, it's a very distinguished think tank, but not only that, I think it's also a very influential think tank, insisting on dealing with things that are, uh, by obvious, uh, relevant to the things that are being discussed. But I have to admit that when someone say Bruegel, um, I think about something else. I think about uh, the elder Peter Bruegel, but there is obvious things in common because you, just as well as him, have people as the centerpiece of your work. And society is all about people, which is why, of course, it makes very good sense. The thing is, one of the things that immediately comes to my mind is the famous picture of a Flemish peasant wedding. It's in full swing 
when we enter the scene. Um, the drink is flowing, talk is intense, food is being carried around. There's a small child in the foreground licking her finger with obvious delight. It's rather like this evening. More dogs, more small children. Uh, it looks like the kind of place that you would like to be. Maybe after I've talked for an hour and a half, a place you'd rather like to be. <laughs> but by the night of that wedding, the peasants would have slept in poor huts. They may worry if they had enough food left for the rest of the winter. That new wife, she would have had no property. She would have had no rights. And uh, the child in the foreground, she may not live to get married herself. In the years that separate us from that picture, the world has changed vastly for the better. And most of that changed has happened within the last few generations. Nearly 70 years ago, a young Swedish child called Hans almost drowned in a sewage ditch. His parents, they weren't there to watch him. His father was working 10 hours a day and his mother was in hospital with tuberculosis. But Hans Rosling, he did survive. And he grew up to be a powerful communicator of the, world, the way the world is getting better. He points out in his book, Factfulness, that Sweden in his lifetime has gone from being just about as well off as modern Egypt to be one of the healthiest, richest country in the entire world. And that didn't happen by magic. It wasn't as if some of the heroes of the comic stripes of this wonderful museum had come to life and fixed it all for us. It's a story of democracy, of working to improve people's lives bits by bits, working gradually, taking one step after another and never giving up, of workers' rights, meaning that today we work eight hours and not 10 hours a day and not six days a week, of insisting and investing in sanitation and insisting on safety. So today there are no open sewers that children can fall into. And a story as well, of course, of vaccinations so that tuberculosis is almost non-existent. And knowing that gives me a lot of confidence in the future. Because Europe faces a lot of challenges. I know you have had in-depth discussions here today. I know you have been throwing around pessimism. You've had a very nice afternoon. <laughs> and of course you're right. Dealing with climate change, tax avoidance, keeping our economy growing and innovating. These are important, difficult challenges. But I still think that overall, 
the glass is more than half full. Because we have what it takes to face these challenges. Our democracies have faced bigger challenges before, and they can do it again if we put our shoulder to the wheel. Ten years ago, almost to the day, Lehman Brothers collapsed and set off the worst financial economic crisis since the 30s. It has caused so many jobs, so many sufferings in families, the social costs cannot possibly be measured. A lot of businesses have lost their business. It may be very important, it undermined people's confidence that the economy will be able to offer a better life for their children. But today, a decade later, Europe is back. Last year, for the first time since 2007, every European economy grew. Unemployment is back around the level it was before the crisis. Just a couple of weeks ago, Greece left the program that kept, kept its economy stable and never have so many people had a job in Europe as today. We still have a lot of work to do. We need to invest in things that will keep our economies growing, to grow strongly, to create jobs in the future. That, of course, requires investments in research, in skills, in infrastructure, by helping smaller companies to grow, to succeed, to create the jobs we need. And that is, of course, why that sort of investment is right at the heart of the Commission proposal for the next seven-year budget. And I'm hopeful about the future of the European economy. Because Europe has what it takes. They are serious, yes, but we also know what to do. And that goes not just for Europe, but also for the world. And Europe can play its very important role here, and maybe a new and enhanced one. Look at international trade. Gradually, over the last 70 years, countries all around the world has opened up trade cutting tariffs, starting to remove other barriers that get in the way of trading freely with each other. Building institutions that make sure that, company, that, uh, that countries not just take a quick win, but do stick to their promises. And that has improved people's lives over and over again. These progress, of course, doesn't mean that we can lean back and say, fine. On the contrary, we shouldn't be comfortable with the progress already made. Because the thing is that we need to make sure that trade is fair as well as free. And that's not easy. But obviously, by seeing what we do, it can be done. Because you see the progress. If you see the trade agreements that my colleague Cecilia Malmström has put together in the last few years, you'd be convinced. Agreements like the one with Canada, with its commitments on both sides to protect the environment, 
to defend workers' rights. All the deal that we have negotiated with Japan, agreeing to avoid giving the sort of subsidies most harmful to competition. And though not everybody is as committed to the double WTO system as we would like them to be, to be modest about it, obviously we must continue to work with countries who will reform the WTO with us to make it work better. And I find it to be encouraging that President Trump and President Juncker in Washington this summer could sit down together and find a way to talk to one another about how to avoid crisis and how to reduce tensions. So the thing is this, when you just look at the problems that we face, they can seem pretty daunting. But when you see them in the context of how much we have done and how much we are capable of doing, I think the world looks like a much less frightening place. I see that all the time in the work of competition law enforcement. When you consider the size of businesses that we as consumers face, that be the power companies that send us the electricity bill, or the internet businesses, or the credit card networks for that matter, it's easy to doubt that we as individual consumers have any chance of getting a fair deal. But I think we do. Because no matter how big a company is, competition still means that it can never stop working out solutions and ways to serve customers better. And if, customers, if companies try to shut down competition, well, competition law enforcers like the European Commission have the powers to defend competition and to keep markets working fairly for consumers. The trouble is that it's not always easy to see that we do have the power to change things for the better. It's easy to have a negative view. For sometimes it seems like it's not worth making an effort because the effect of that effort can be very difficult to see. For many years, Hans Rosling, in every audience where he was speaking, asked some very basic questions about the world. And the answers people gave, they were systematically wrong. I shall spare you for the embarrassment. The average audience, and that would be an average audience of highly esteemed economists, of people working in financial sector, even of NGOs, they would, for instance, think that the average life expectancy across the world was only 60 years, though it's actually more than 70. They would think that no more than half of the world population would have access to electricity, even though the figure is higher than 80%. They would believe that just 20% of today's one-year-olds have been vaccinated when the level is actually 88%. That is thought-provoking. 
that the most enlightened people taking the most important decision on behalf of each and every one of us have such a pessimistic look upon the state of the world. But I think we can understand why it happens. If you are looking at, for instance, the family photos, I see some of you still remember the days when we had family photos, <laughs> and we printed them, and we put them in albums, and now we can take them forward, and we wonder, how did that cute little thing become that teenager? What happened? Because obviously we don't recognize the gradual steps that it takes for a child to become an adult. Of course, I always jump very quickly about the pictures of myself being a young person because unfortunately the same things apply there. No, but the thing is that things that happen gradually are very difficult to detect. I think it's human nature that we engage ourselves, that we get um, enthusiastic or fearful about big dramatic changes. But it is the slow, gradual changes that has changed the world for the better. And of course we have to, and I think that's an exercise for each and every one of us, to be able to compensate for the natural negative look upon our world. The screenwriter, Richard Curtis, he put it very nicely. He gave an interview very recently, and he said, it's like the hair and the tortoise. The bad news is the hair, getting all the attention, making the news. But the good news, the progress, the positive changes, it's the tortoise happening way too gradually to get the media's attention. And that is understandable, but obviously also very harmful because it makes us a very easy prey for what you could call the worry industry. For the people, or maybe even institutions, who want to keep us in a state of fear, seeing problems and not solutions. Just to give you one example of that, in 2015, more than a million refugees arrived in Europe. They were fleeing from a conflict that destroyed their homes, their livelihoods, their children's futures. Not since the Second World War, which drove 20 million Europeans from their homes, has Europe had to deal with such a crisis. At that early stage, when 20 million Europeans were driven from their homes, countries all over the world agreed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and later in the Refugee Convention on the international duty to protect refugees. Think about that for a moment. 145 states have ratified a convention confirming that we all have a common duty to make sure that refugees are not returned to countries where they face serious threats to their life or freedom. It is hard to come across a stronger example of progress. But obviously the crisis we faced in 2015 put a huge strain 
on our ability to live up to that fundamental duty. And it called for urgent action, and urgent action was taken. We created a European border and coast guard with the resources to step in and help countries to protect our external borders. We provided money to support countries where refugees arrive and for working with some of the countries where refugees arrive from to help give better protection and more opportunities. And by last year, the number of refugees arriving in Europe by sea has fallen now to more than less than 80% since 2015. What we have now, we call a migration crisis, but maybe to an even larger uh, extent, we have a political crisis, a crisis that we need to solve. In the next seven-year budgets, from the Commission side, we have proposed to almost triple the amount of money that goes into managing migration. And of course, part of solving the political crisis is for member states to agree that they want to solve this together with all their different interests and figure out what is the solution. But the worry industry wants us to see things differently as if nothing never happened, as if we are still in 2015, so that we see only the crisis and not the way our democracies have responded. They want us to believe, it wants us to believe, that our values of democracy, of talking, of discussing, of coming together, of equal value of people, of protecting the most vulnerable, that it makes it impossible to deal with the crisis if we stick to st stay through and loyal to our values. And in doing that, it is our greatest, our greatest ally is of course our mind, our own problem, our own uh, tendency to see the dramatic problem and not the careful solutions. So we have to find strategies that enable us not only to see the problems, but also to see the careful, slow, difficult, discussed, conflictual solutions that emerge. It is so tempting to fight drama with drama, to try to compete by painting the world in maybe even worse pictures, to agree that things are going dramatically wrong and argue that we, and not our opponents, are the ones to make everything better. But I think it is a mistake. In democracies, we need to be open, not, about, not just about what is going wrong, but also about what is going right. And this is not about trying to play down the scale of challenges we face. It's not about ignoring the problems of today by diverting attention to what happened in the past. It's just the opposite. It is gaining the confidence to act, to take action, to agree on the world as we see it, on what problems we want to solve, and to find the solutions, agree, decide, and put into effect. So just to conclude, this world is not a paradise. 
I doubt if it ever were. And if it were, it is not Eve's fault that we're not there anymore. <laughs> but the thing is that we've been able to change. In the Bruegel painting of the wedding, with their doubts and fears, when the lights were out, well, of course, we still have doubts and fears when the lights are out. And we face enormous challenges, climate change, change, tax avoidance, terrorism, trade wars. But knowing about these problems, that's not enough. You will also need to know that it's worth fighting for because change happens when we make it happen. And they need to know that in our democracies, the majority of politicians, the majority of thinkers, the majority of people in NGOs, as undramatic as it may seem, well, they're prepared to work together, not as strong men, not as authoritarians, but to show that the tortoise has won the race over and over and over again and make our lives better and healthier and richer so that we, we can win the support again. And that is why I think that what we really need is a little balance, a complete, you might call it factful, view of the world. Hans Rosling, sadly, died last year after decades of work as a doctor on ground in Mozambique and Congo, and as a statistician to help us see the world in true colors. But before he died, he handed it over to us. And this must be the best place to say exactly this, to hand it over to us, thinkers, politicians, servants, to find the courage to act. You don't need to be positive. You just need to be able to see the world in true colors as it really is. And from that, get the confidence to make it better. Thank you. Thank you very much, Commissioner, for this inspiring uh, speech um, and uh, a good antidote uh, for, uh, uh, I mean, a good antidote against pessimism and for factfulness and factfulness as a good reason to be on an optimist, um, if I may put it like this. Uh, so it was great to, to have you and you have, thank you for, for agreeing to take a few questions. Um, and I think there, there are microphones um, uh, available. And, and I think um, our, ch uh, our honorary president, uh, Mario Monti, uh, has agreed to, to add a few remarks um, and comments. Thank you so much, Margrethe, for this uh, inspiring, extremely strong, and very human 
address. Um, I will have a question to ask of you, but before that, two preliminary footnotes. One about reverse engineering, and the second about your proselytism. Reverse engineering, you dwelt on the word Bruegel. You should know that uh, about uh, 13 years ago, a small group of us uh, spent some time <laughs> um, to find out what uh, a good name for this uh, then uh, newly born think tank might be. And uh, I was particularly, as uh, incoming uh, chairman, uh, asked uh, to deploy some imagination while others uh, were doing more important things. <laughs> and of course, you cannot imagine setting up something in Brussels without using an acronym. But at the same time, you cannot really imagine to set up something that bears another acronym in Brussels. <laughs> so the idea was exactly the one that you now dissected through reverse engineering <laughs> to uh, use uh, an image, indeed an image. So Bruegel as uh, somebody whom uh, many of us uh, have been uh, loving uh, since their uh, youth uh, was uh, the, the painter in point, the, the symbol of this part of Europe. But of course it wasn't that simple because how can you reconcile uh, Bruegel, the inspirer of images, and Bruegel, the acronym? Well, luckily enough, uh, there exist three different variants in the uh, writing of the family name uh, Bruegel, uh, and uh, we opted for the one which, uh, is, which now exists up there, which of course means Brussels, European, and Global Economic Laboratory. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I want to congratulate Bruegel, uh, Guntram, all his team, because as many of you will know, uh, Bruegel now occupies in a fairly stable manner the number two position in the respected uh, ranking uh, among uh, uh, international think tanks. Uh, they, or we, they, are, you are number two uh, in the world in the area of international economics. Um, then your proselytism, your unwilling and maybe unaware of proselytism. Uh, I would like you, Margarete, uh, and uh, those of us uh, who like uh, uh, quizzes to <laughs> detect uh, who the author may be of uh, this uh, sentence reported actually uh, today in uh, a, a news uh, agency about antitrust. I quote, I won't comment, comment on the breaking up of whether it is that or Amazon or Facebook. 
this person said uh, in an interview. And he goes on saying, as you know, many people think it is a very antitrust situation, the three of them. But I just, I won't comment on that. So, uh, and uh, the uh, definition of this as a very antitrust situation uh, is very interesting indeed, uh, said of these technology firms. And uh, he borrowed this person from you, Commissioner, both uh, the caution, I won't comment, but also the uh, inspiration about doing something and maybe something big. Uh, I won't say whether they should be broken up or not. Now, this gentleman was speaking in uh, an office peculiarly shaped, uh, an oval office, <laughs> and uh, his name is Donald Trump. So congratulations for this most recent acquisition to your <laughs> camp. <laughs> lastly, lastly, one uh, uh, slightly more serious question. There is no question to, to me, but to many of us, uh, that uh, uh, the European Union is uh, within the context of global governance, uh, specializing in regulation in a broad sense, be it uh, privacy regulation or competition policy, etc., etc. There is also no question that uh, in your area, the European Union is uh, both institutionally stronger, less politically cyclical, and more determined than the United States. It, there is no question that now the new game the most important game is about technology companies, big data and all that. There is no question also, unfortunately, that most of them are US-based multinationals. Uh, how do you see your uh, action going forward of uh, enforcing uh, competition policy seriously for the benefit of consumers and indirectly, not only consumers in the EU market, but also globally, how do you reconcile this uh, action that you are conducting so strongly, so visibly, and with uh, so much convinced applause with the fact that in a time of uh, populism, uh, everything is uh, perceived to be a trade war, even if uh, it is not a trade war at all, like a Competition Enforcement Act. Um, how do you see the future of this uh, extremely important uh, action uh, area of the European Commission, but of this potentially explosive uh, area in the transatlantic and global relations? And thank you very much for all you do for uh, us in Europe and for Europe. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's, yeah. I'm under this, a, a certain pressure of the food coming in. Uh, I'm happy that you all have wine, so uh, at least so far so good. Um, no, the thing is, 
that the European mission is very simple. Uh, choices, value-based choices were made by our founders. The treaty is not a scientific document. It's a political value-based treaty. And uh, from what I have learned, they saw the role of uh, cartels and monopolies in the 30s in the running up to the Second World War. And they decided that a regulated market should play its part in the puzzle of peacekeeping. So the mission is very simple, to make sure that the markets work well, well for Europeans. Uh, and that is what keeps us busy, and that is what uh, makes us uh, get up happily in the morning. Uh, and I think it is important that in each jurisdiction, responsibility is taken by the relevant authorities, because we cannot do each other's work. But we can inspire one another. And, and one of the uh, happy discoveries in, in being the commissioner for competition is the International Competition Network. Uh, which is uh, high on substance and low on protocol to make sure that when competition enforcers come together, they talk about uh, due process, about merger filings, about how to do uh, market analysis, and in that we can inspire one another. And I think that inspiration, that works to a very large degree when we see that consumers, citizens in the role of consumers, do appreciate the work being done. Uh, because to enforce competition and to make sure that that is the situation in the marketplace, to draw sort of the very big line, you're part of enabling people to see that the society is there for them. And that is part of a peacekeeping mission. And in that way, I think the world is coming together, not in one jurisdiction, but with each jurisdiction responsible for what we have to do, but being able to inspire each other on almost every trend of what we do. Okay, um, I see that, uh, of course, the dinner is served, but uh, I think perhaps if there's one more, uh, one or two more urgent questions, we, we can still take them. Um, please, um, you would need to identify yourself because I cannot see very well against the light. So there's, yeah, there's one, uh, yeah, Philip, Philip Steinberg from the German Economics Ministry. Can we get a, mi a microphone? Um. Yeah, thank you very much for this uh, impressive uh, speech. I would like to maybe a little, insist a little bit on, on what Marie Monti said, because I mean, what you have mentioned as well, we see that the international aura, as we have uh, witnessed it for, for quite some time, is being, to put it mildly, challenged quite in a, in a dramatic way. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, and we are wondering a little bit in, in Germany and, and I think everywhere in Europe, how competition law is to answer that. Because, I mean, I think Mario Monti was, was uh, hinting at it. Of course, I mean, the pressures to actually to unite and put industrial policy more in the, in the window is, is increasing. And I mean, I'm responsible for competition policy on the national level in Germany. And, and I'm not totally sure how to respond, actually. Of course, we are setting up, as you have done, commissions to look into it and so on. But I mean, um, the, I think there, there is a case for, for it that we, uh, uh, that we need to actually um, rethink um, our, the basis of competition policy. And, uh, and, and maybe, and of course, we have some instruments like com uh, projects of common European interest and so on, but maybe that's not enough. So I would just like to know what's your take on that. Thank you very much. 
so, so if there, if there is, is there a second um, remark, question, um, comment? Um, yes, here. Uh, and then. Thank you. Uh, Krishna Guha with Evercore Partners in the US. I wondered if you could just offer us some thoughts on how Europe should respond to the challenge from China. Obviously, we've seen the US administration uh, take a very extreme approach to dealing with the threat from technology transfer and other things. And yet, even if we may disagree with the methods that the US administration is currently using or its approaches, it seems that there's some substance there that needs to be addressed. And I'd be very interested in your perspective as to how we address this in a more fruitful way. Well, I, I tried to answer the two uh, comments uh, uh, at the same time, because I think the most important point is that competition policy is a very strong competence, but it's not the end of the story. Uh, you need to supplement or, or work with competition policy and regulation uh, very closely. Uh, if you look at, uh, at China and, and trade relationship, one of the things that I find to be very important is that maybe from a European side, you are slightly more hard-nosed. Uh, that we get uh, reciprocity in place, uh, that we get more precise in our uh, demands for uh, reducing subsidies on the other side of the trade relation. Because if that cannot happen, obviously it must have consequences. Uh, I think to get in place, uh, and hopefully it will soon be done, uh, the screening of foreign direct investment. I think that's a very important point. I think it's very important that we keep discussing, as we do with the Chinese on basis of a memorandum of understanding, uh, how to minimize the most harmful subsidies, as we now have in a Japanese uh, trade agreement. Um, and I see, I see no difference between having a more direct relationship, also look at the revised directive of public tenders, which offers new opportunities of being much more precise and to qualify your tenders much more to make sure that you get uh, working conditions, that you get fair competition in the tenders. So we, there's been passed a couple of pieces of regulation, there's been proposed a couple of pieces of regulation that will make uh, it a much more balanced uh, relationship. And I think that is very important. But I think it's very important to be concrete so that you're addressing tangible, direct issues instead of sort of spooking up a Chinese ghost. Because it's important as well that we work with the Chinese, but that we also are precise in how do we intend this to work. Because free trade is definitely not just free trade. And I do understand the European businesses who say, well, uh, we have our ways of financing. We find that some of our Chinese competitors, they have other ways of financing. And that's a very tricky competition point. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I think it's very important to discuss if we have the right regulation when you look at competition law enforcement in itself, which is why I have asked uh, three uh, very, very knowledgeable people in, in economics, competition, and tech uh, to rethink and to advise if we need to change regulation in order to be better in what, at what we do. Uh, and then, of course, also when you look at the mergers that we have been approving in our merger control over the last couple of years, you see that 
huge companies has been created, but in a balanced way so that European consumers still have the benefit of competition while you have companies who have sufficient scale to compete uh, on the global market. And that, I think, is very, very important uh, because what has happened over the last 10 years is that the market has expanded. Uh, now, I think more than 65% of our markets are either uh, European, EEA Lite, or global in scale. And that, of course, is reflected in our work so that it is up to date. But obviously, we're open to suggestions and to discussions, which is exactly the reason why we have called for contributions and why we have asked some of the best and the brightest to advise uh, in order to be able, exactly as Mario mentioned, to be able also to get it right when the entire world digitalizes. Because this is not just about tech, this is also about digital agriculture, digital health, uh, digital administration, digital everything. And this is, of course, why the next year will be an important year in discussing and eventually preparing for regulation that will be strong enough to do that. Great. Uh, thank you again, Commissioner, for giving this dinner speech and for these inspiring words. And please join, uh, please join me in thanking the Commissioner for her time today.